Welcome to episode 356 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's hard to believe that in some ways the summer dwindles on. It's almost the very end. Yeah, it's it's starting to get cool. This morning I had to wear a long shirt when I went running because it was chilly enough. I mean, unless, of course, you're in a different hemisphere and then your summer is about to begin. <laughs> so, like, you know, this is what happens. We're, we are where we are in the world. But we've been tracking this entire summer, basically, I think the full length of the summer, with this idea of wading into and meditating on and sitting deeply in the Lord's Prayer. And just to recapitulate just a little bit, because we're drawing both near the end of the summer and the end of this series and going through piece by piece what our Savior gives us to pray, both by way of specific wording and by way of a model, that it might be helpful to, at the top, just mention two things. One is why we're doing this. Uh, you know, the first reason is that there might be many motivations that we receive or read about that would move us to, as Christians to pray. But the first is that God just commands it. Yeah. And we don't pray after meeting certain requirements or only at certain times or if we're good enough. Really, the first thing to know is this. It's our duty to pray because God commands that we ought to pray. And so that's the very thing we've been trying to emphasize across this entire series. Here's the second thing, that as part of that motivation, really God takes the initiative to put words into our mouth that are the very words in which we are to approach him and use in our conversation with him. And of course, that happens in the Psalms writ large, and we've spoken about that at other times. But what a great gift that God gives that to us by way of his son. When his disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus, rather than saying, don't worry about it, or have you not read the Psalms? Like, are you not familiar <laughs> with that jam? He says, yes, pray then in this way. So we're just kind of coming into this and saying, God is so good to us. He gives us the motivation, but then he also gives us this lovely blueprint, blueprint which we know is the perfect model. And there's so much there for us to digest. And why I'd like to think this series has been definitive, in many ways, it's just opening the door. It's kind of pushing it, cracking it open with your foot so you could peer in and see a little bit about what it looks like to have this kind of prayer relationship with God. So we're coming to the end and we're getting to the split phrase. We're going to talk about this idea of not being led into temptation or better yet, being delivered from the evil or the evil one, something we'll talk about in this conversation. But here's the other but. Before we do that, it's definitely affirmation denial time. And I'm going to go with denials first. Oh, that way we'll just we'll just ramp up, we'll crescendo as it were. So, what are you denying against on this episode? Well, this is one of those should be its own podcast episode denials, and it was its own podcast episode both on our podcast and also a, a much more recent one on uh, the particular Baptist podcast, which is one of our member shows on the Society of Reformed Podcasters. So there's been a little bit of a hubbub online lately, and I'm not really on social media much these days. So it, I really only started hearing about it when uh, I started hearing the responses to it. So I'm a little bit late on the uptake here. But our good friend, Doug Wilson, uh, recently posted, I don't know how recently, I don't even know when this happened, 
couple weeks ago, he recently posted this this quote, which was a uh, a quote from it looks like a truncated quote from one of his articles, which was then contained in a book, which he now is posting in truncated form to Twitter, which should probably already tell you that he's built in layers of defense on top of layers of defense of you just didn't understand and you're reading me out of context. Uh, but he's the one that took it out of context. So he wrote, quote, discuss among yourselves. And then this this is where the quote starts from his book. Um, quote, discuss among yourselves. What is regeneration? That That is an existential and experimental reality. God takes away a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Now when does now when does regeneration occur? According to the traditional ordo, regeneration is first then repentance, then faith, then justification. Imputation arrives with justification. What is the righteousness that this new heart has, both experientially and practically? It is an infused righteousness. Regeneration is not imputed, right? Regeneration is a change of heart from an unrighteous heart that hates God to a righteous but still imperfect heart that loves him, repents of sin, and believes in him. At the end of the day, this means infused righteousness is the instrument of imputed righteousness, end quote. And this uh, this comes from the Auburn, uh, the Auburn Avenue Chronicles, page 60 through 61, which this book was a collection of articles that he wrote on different various subjects related to the Auburn Avenue theology, which later became known as the Federal Vision. So this is, again, as I said, this is a quote which Doug Wilson has taken out of its context. Not only did he take it out of the context of the original article, but he took it out of the context of the book in which he reprinted that article. He has presented it without the original uh, original context. And I, we don't need to get into all of the details um, over on the the um, particular Baptist podcast. They did a full episode just kind of digging through this and showing that one, this is not an unusual theology for him. This is not a this is not like a strangely phrased anomaly in his theology, but actually this confusion, uh, which this really breaks down to a confusion between sanctification and justification. It's it really breaks down to that, and this is not a new thing in his theology. But what I want to what I want to point out, just what when I'm looking at this, just as I've read through that, he doesn't even really get the traditional ordo right. Right? Did you did you notice that he puts repentance right. prior to faith? So right. that needs to tell you something like not only is his articulation of what the implications are here is a little bit squirrely, but he doesn't even necessarily get the the quote unquote traditional ordo right. Um, repentance, while there is some discussion among the reformed and it's not fully uniform, that repentance may come be prior to justification or sometimes after justification. Um, I, I think we've made the argument that the the more thoroughly biblical and, and consistently reformed position is that repentance is a consequence of of justification or of of it falls within sanctification. It's part of our sanctification. It's part of the good works we do as a result of our justification, not a cause or a component of faith. But he's not even getting there. He just puts repentance before justification, which or before um, before faith even. So in his or in his understanding of what the traditional ordo is, you're repenting before you even trust in God. So so he doesn't even get that right. And the the main problem with this, and as I said, the particular Baptist podcast did a much better job than I'm doing right now. Um, what this essentially does, and what he was trying to do was was point out that there is a um, question mark in the ordo, right? Because regeneration in his articulation is this new reality where God infuses a new life into us. 
that language, the, the language of infused grace is not, is not traditionally or historically used of regeneration in the first place. So in my mind, this actually proves exactly the point that we're making against him. In the Reformed Westminster Standards, in the larger catechism, the category of infused grace is perfectly fine when you're talking about sanctification, right? Right. Grace is infused, righteousness is infused in sanctification. And so he's pointing out, well, regeneration is part of sanctification. Well, no, it's it's not. So I want to give him a tiny bit of credit that there is challenges when we think of the Ordo Salutis in this like linear this happens first, this happens second, this happens third kind of a, a, a pattern, right? There are some challenges there, and there are reasons historically why people like William Perkins literally make a diagram. Uh, there are challenges there, but he essentially holds up like either you're a Roman Catholic and grace righteousness is infused, or you're an Arminian and repent uh, uh, regeneration happens after faith. Which is it, guys? And we're like, this is exactly the problem with your theology is you're not reformed. You don't understand it. So I don't want to belabor that point. I think this is just more of the same from him where he's he's not really interested in providing clear articulations or clear answers to the questions he's posing. He really is just challenging historic reformed orthodoxy. And someone whose almost entire shtick is to spend all their energy creating controversy and challenging historic reformed orthodoxy. Um, I don't know why we would want to a consider that person reformed in the first place or B why we would really want to spend that much time reading and listening to him. So check out what the particular Baptist did. We did episodes on the federal vision very early on. Um, yes. We also compared it, basically said it was that Lordship salvation and, um, and federal vision are actually related errors that Lordship salvation is basically federal vision without covenantal categories. Um, and I think this actually proves it like this confusion about where, where repentance falls in the order, what it, what the purpose of repentance is, how it functions. It shows that like these guys are all orbiting in the same, same kind of error neighborhood. Um, but this specifically was just an attempt to cause controversy and to challenge the historic Orthodox position without, without really even going to classic biblical or, or historical sources on it. He just wanted to like drop a bomb and then walk away. There's no yeah, utility to that. There's exactly. no value in that at all. Exactly. That's something that's helpful to know about some of what he presents, but particularly this thing, it's meant to be evocative. It's meant to kind of be trolling in a way that, again, with him even saying, like, just discuss amongst yourselves. Right, like, right. So just want to come into a room, stir everybody up, get everybody fired up and leave. So as long as you know that that's in part what's happening here, you're probably better off. The second thing, and I want to echo what you said, you went to a place that I was exactly going to go. And as if all of this sounds like just overtly confusing, and maybe you're like, I would love a better way to conceive of everything that Tony just said about the order of salutis, this idea of there being some kind of order of salvation, maybe not temporarily, but ideologically and theologically, then I would recommend searching The Golden Chain by William Perkins. That is yeah. a diagram that helps kind of flush this out quite literally. Or there's a more modern version of that. If you search for visual theology, you'll also find that, that's a lovely site actually that tries to conceptualize many of the things that we've talked about on our podcast yeah. in some kind of visual form. This is really great, especially if you're a visual learner or when I see everything in front of you, there is the order and causes of salvation and damnation on visual theology, which is inspired by the Golden Chain by William Perkins. They're both really great resources. So that's just a nice way to kind of take everything you just heard it, that came into your ear holes and say, how can I see that with my eye holes? So this is like a way to, I don't know, 
bookend or yeah. reinforce everything that you just said. Yeah. And like I said, there are challenges in understanding the ordo salutis as this strictly linear cause of an effect sequence. Um, regeneration in some senses doesn't even really fit in the ordo salutis because what regeneration is, is the infusion of new life. It's, it's the, um, it's the creating of new life and then everything else in the ordo salutis. And we talked about this. We did a whole series on the ordo salutis during this, during this broader theology series. We've talked about this many times, but everything else that happens in the ordo salutis is, is that new life doing something. So like this new life occurs and that's regeneration. And the first thing that that new life does is receives, it receives uh, justification by faith, receives Christ by faith. Where what, what Wilson is saying is that re righteousness or uh, repentance happens and righteousness is infused in regeneration. And that righteousness that is infused in regeneration is the instrument which causes justification, right? So there's a very distinct difference to the answer he presents to what to the challenge of this linear ordo salutis, right? There are also challenges with not having a linear ordo salutis. Is all, your theology just gets very confused. You end up with this weird kind of like jambalaya of salvation events, and there's no clear understanding of how those things are related to each other. And of course, we've said this many times. We're talking about infinite, eternal, atemporal concepts, and we only right. can talk about them within this time-bound frame that we exist in. So of course, we're going to struggle to understand these relationships. So anyway, it, check out what the particular Baptists did. Uh, I'm I'm sure that Josh Summer on, on Baptist Broadcast probably will comment on this if he hasn't already. I know he's got a conference that he's running right now, so he may, be, he may have not gotten to it yet, but um, it really is just not it's just not a good thing. And and here's the crazy thing. Phil Johnson from Master Seminary from Grace Grace Community Church, like the hotbed seedbed of of Lordship Salvation. He's the one that started responding to me like, yeah, this doesn't line up with the Westminster Confession, which you seem to claim to affirm. So it's it's just more of the same. There was no interest in uh, trying to bring clarity or to articulate a, a constructive answer. You know, there, there's a time and place to pose a provocative question uh, in theology uh, in a, a totally open forum where everyone and their mother may be reading. This was originally posted on Twitter, of course, in an open forum where there's no there's no guardrails, there's no protective structures, there's no nobody to shepherd a conversation along. And we, we can't know where everybody coming to the conversation is in terms of their theological acumen, their theological ability, their background. This is just unwise and unhelpful. And in some ways is almost predatory, right? It's meant to attract people to a controversy rather than to, to first and foremost, win them with the gospel and present them with the law and the gospel. But it's, it's not meant to foster growth and discussion. It's meant to attract people to him because of the controversy, which sounds like a sounds like a judgment call, but I think there's a pretty pretty well established pattern here. That's not how a Christian operates. That's not how a Christian public figure should operate. We should be bringing people. Sometimes we have to address controversial issues, and we certainly have done that on this show. But we should not be building our lives and careers on just attracting people to our controversy, to the controversy that is us. We should not be individually controversial figures. That's not admirable. That's not, uh, that's not something that is worth fostering. And it's certainly not a Christian, like a Christian perspective. Yeah, I think that's right on. It's one of those great reminders that again, 
if none of that made sense or all that made sense, no matter what you experienced, as Tony explained that, I think the call here, the clarion call, is to understand what the gospel is and what it means to be saved. These things do matter. So doing some research, looking into William Perkins, looking at these diagrams will help you to process self, avoid the controversy, but take on a proper biblical understanding of what it means to be saved and get some understanding of there is an order of events, as it were, and so to speak, as best we can in our own mind, understand how God brings about salvation and the order of things does in fact matter. And whether we really splice those or parse them out to a great degree of nuance is almost irrelevant to us at least having a baseline first principled understanding of what God does in salvation. That is always worth having. And don't let anybody bait you into controversy among the nuance. It's really important to understand those first principles. I hear you saying, listen, get after that. You don't have to read all of Doug Wilson's stuff to be inspired to do that. You should, we should all want to do that. So we understand the scriptures better. And as we're promulgating the gospel, we're doing it rightly and understanding yeah, it fully. For sure. Jesse, save me from this becoming the whole episode and tell me what you're denying today. I'm just going to go as far away as possible from that. I think nobody would be able to guess right now what I'm about to deny. That's how far away I am. So this is going to sound conspiratorial. I'm denying big shoe. Oh my. The big shoe industry. And maybe this is more a call for everybody to do their own research, but here's what I'm denying in particular is that the shoe companies the sneaker companies or the tennis shoe. What do they say in the rest of the world besides sneaker? Tennis shoe. Tennis shoe? Yes. Sneaker is, a, sneaker is a pretty distinctively New England thing. I think so. That's more like Atlantic side. Uh, sneakers and trainers, right? For our continental loved ones? Yeah, I think so. I think so. All right. So you know what I'm talking about, right? An athletic shoe. We've long been taught they have to look a certain way. They have to have a large stack that is like they have to have all this padding underneath and they have the big heel. They have to have a drop that is like the heel is higher than the toe box. The toe box is often narrow. Like, have you ever noticed that like, let me just pick on Nike, for instance, most shoes are kind of pointy. Is your foot pointy? Does that make sense? So I'm pushing against this. You can do your own research, but the transition that I've been making through time is twofold. One is that like a shoe that's very minimal and is more suited to the way that God created your foot, if I can be so bold. <laughs> and uh, the second is that to have like a wide toe box, like your your toes would be able to move around, to be splayed, to have room to chill and to relax. So if you wonder what I'm talking about in distinction of like Nike and I'm looking at you, Hoka, I don't know why you're clapping. Um, <laughs> here's what I recommend. Go look at shoes that are from a company called Ultra, A-L-T-R-A, or zero shoes, X-E-R-O. And what you're going to see is shoes that probably don't look like the sneakers, trainers, or tennis shoes that are in your closet. So I'm just firing a shot on this top 50 healthcare podcast <laughs> to Big Shoe saying, listen, we see what you're doing. Make us wear shoes that are stylish, but maybe aren't good for our bodies. And again, you are all in Pauline style, reasonable people. You can go do the research, but I'm just trying to bait you now into doing some looking on the internet interwebs to see what I'm talking about. Try some alternative shoes, fight against the big shoe. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at these and you're right. Like they're not what you're used to. They look like clown shoes because they're like, they're sort of like big and bulbous in the front, but that's how our foot is shaped. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that. I was going to say that very same thing, but I have these shoes. I have several pairs now and I've become somewhat of an apologist and hopefully not too conspiratorial, but they are super comfortable. The most comfortable shoes I've ever owned. So this idea of like zero drop, just a flat shoe uh, that my son 
totally strange to many of our listeners. And then this idea that like your toes like want to dance. They want to move. They need some room. And yeah, and these are just comfortable shoes. And then there's, again, people can read. There's lots of interesting things, lots of studies done about what it means that even for people who are flat-footed, that we've somehow in this modern era vouchsafed structure to our shoes and that actually hurts our bodies. It hurts our backs. It hurts our posture. It hurts the way we move around. So moving and returning to something that's more natural is in fact what allegedly God intended. I don't know. I don't know what kind of shoes Adam was wearing in the garden. I presume there was zero drop and you know, they're a minimalist. So, but well, you've, you've started doing a little bit of barefoot running, haven't you? Yes. Like using barefoot shoes. Yeah. That's what I'm transitioning to. So like yeah. zero shoes are typically a barefoot shoe. What that means it's they're not monkey shoes for anybody that's listening and being like, are those the weird shoes where like all your toes are splayed in their individual like places? No, it's, it's just a really comfortable shoe. That's super minimalistic. I mean, think about like, you know, in the summer or in the summer, a lot of people love to go outside with like sandals. Most sandals are pretty minimalist, right? Yeah. It's just like your foot on like a more or less pretty flat piece of rubber. It's like the idea is like, what if you took a shoe and made it fit your foot shape for real? And then it had minimal cushioning underneath. So you could actually like feel the surface on which you're walking. You would be responding. Many would argue, that's the last thing I'll say, and we can move on. Many would argue that if you, like, so if we look at AJ, your son, and we just let him, we just like release him outside and let him run. Many would say like both like physical therapists and physiologists, like they would say AJ would have the perfect running form. And because one, he's running barefoot and two, he hasn't been influenced by anything. He just has his feet and your feet when they're in that form will naturally dictate the proper way to run and move and that that is the best way for you. And so, of course, then this idea of returning to shoes that allow you to really feel the ground, be connected to it, and don't have all this like extraneous padding or huge cushion or lots of foam, that that is the better way to move. Again, it's an argument you can all evaluate. I'm just throwing it out there. This is like the, I, actually, you know what? I totally take back what I said before about this being disconnected from your denial. This is, I'm, I'm the, this is the Doug Wilson of shoe comments. Discuss right among yourselves. <laughs> Discuss among yourselves whether you should be wearing a minimalist shoe that fits your foot shape or whether you should be wearing something else. I think uh, you, what you just argued for is that the na- the most natural running, I don't know, stance, whatever, is directly into traffic. Because if we let AJ out and just let him go, that's exactly what he would do. He would run directly to the worst, most dangerous thing he could, which is that you know, itself honestly, is a theology lesson. Yes. You just, oh my word, you just beat me to it. All right. Let, let's let's move on from that. What are you affirming with? So this is going to sound a little bit like a popcorn uh, uh, coconut oil affirmation here at first, but it's not. So we've talked on the show in the past about an app called Matter, which we used to be, and I think Jesse still is, and I know that our resident AI Petebot in the Telegram chat still is a Feedly person and a Read Later person. However, Matter has very quickly replaced I still use Feedly for some things, but so Feedly is an RSS aggregator. So you put in all your different blogs and it, it, rather than going to a bunch of different blogs, you just go there and it shows you all the new content. Um, Pocket or is a read it later app where you're able to save articles, web pages, whatever you want to that, to read it later. It's a pretty sim- simple concept. Matter is a, an app that allows you to do both of those things, which that in itself is an improvement over either of them. If you ask me. But Matter has started to add some features, or maybe they were always there and I just didn't know. And this one, this one, I think, 
makes it worth the the monthly cost for the software for the app. So Jesse and I both hate monthly cost apps. I would much rather pay a lifetime fee and get like a get a, a lifetime whatever. I would pay I would probably pay 10 times more for an app than than I would ordinarily if I don't have to do a stupid subscription right. fee. But this feature alone may make matter worth the subscription fee. Are you got you're all on pins and needles now? I discovered entirely by accident the other day that if you send a podcast episode, and I don't know whether you have to send it from iTunes or from Apple Podcasts or whether you can send it from other places. I sent it from Apple Podcasts. If you send an Apple Podcast episode to to Matter, it will transcribe the episode very quickly. And when you play the episode, it will play the audio for you at speed, whatever speed you set it at, and it will trace along with the transcribed words as it plays through the episode. So I discovered this because I was listening to Unseen Things by Sinclair Ferguson, and there was a particular phrase that I wanted to capture. I was driving, so I wasn't going to stop and write it down. So I, I very quickly pulled out my phone. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I pulled out my phone and hit share, sent the thing to uh, Matter simply just to capture the, the podcast, and I would go back later and listen to it and transcribe it. When I got to where I was going, I went to Matter and discovered it had generated a transcript. I was like, what the egg is this? So I don't know if this is a premium feature. I'm assuming it's probably a premium feature because I have I have Matter Premium. And it'll do the same thing with YouTube videos. You have to request the transcript for a YouTube video. You can only do it a certain number of times per day, and sometimes it doesn't work right. But this for me is a total game changer because I'm actually developing this this like note-taking knowledge management methodology that I've been working on. And one of the things I've struggled with is I listen to a lot of podcasts and I want to capture notes out of those podcasts, but it I don't want to sit in one spot and listen to the podcast and write down the notes as I'm listening to the podcast. I want to be able to listen to the podcast. If something catches my mind, I want to come back to it later and capture that information. This accomplishes that for me. So now not only do I not need to have some workflow where I take stuff out of Feedly and put it in Pocket and then read it in Pocket later and then capture it in Pocket and then put it into another thing, I can do all of that. And then I can synchronize my highlights, which now I can highlight things in the transcript of the podcast. I can synchronize my highlights out of matter automatically into Obsidian or wherever it is that I'm using. So for me, this is a total game changer. This definitively settles the argument about which is better, whether it's Pocket or Matter. The only thing that Pocket has going for it over Matter at this point is that it's free. Um, so if you don't want to pay for it, and, and I totally get that. Honestly, if you listen to a lot of podcasts and you want to capture the insights out of those podcasts in a more durable form, this is probably worth the the investment in the monthly uh, the monthly fee that you use. Um, I, I don't. I mean, I know I'm I'm like totally like Apple evangelist level of propaganda sharing here, but I really think this is a game changer. So so check it out. I say that every time, but it, it's worth even just paying the monthly fee once to test it and see if this is something that you'll utilize enough to justify it. This is, and, and it's super, super fast. I've tried a lot of, um, transcription services that take a podcast episode. We talked about snipped. There's a couple other similar apps where like you can request a transcript. This is like lightning fast. It is super, super quick to generate a, a transcript. And from what I can tell, it's really accurate as well. So I, I can't stop talking about this. This is like such a game changer for me.
Discuss amongst yourselves. Discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> Someday, because again, we're already here, like just crushing the 23rd minute mark on this episode. Someday, you know what we should do? Or maybe like once a year, maybe like at the end of the calendar year, we should do like an all affirmations denials episode. There you go. We just like pound a bunch of them. Cause I know like you and I sometimes have a backlog or we get yeah. super excited about stuff. And we always think like we got to move on because we actually have a topic at hand. What if there was an episode where there was no topic at hand and it was just affirmations and denials? Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, it'd be yeah. like we, since we'd have the freedom to just let it run, it'd probably just be whoever has the first somewhat theological denial or affirmation would just become the episode. That's true. But That's okay, you know, though. It's our exactly. That would be the joy of that particular episode. I love it. I'm going to check it out again and revisit it. Uh, all those things are great. You you dropped a bunch of stuff. So check out Pocket, Feedly, Matter. Find what works best for you. What a time to be alive. That We can get all this information in the way that we want to consume it. I would love to know if somebody takes one of our episodes and drops it in transcription and then tries to listen to it in real time. I'm from New England. You live in New England. We talk fast. This is what we do. So like, even if you speed us up, which I know many people do at either 1.5 or 2 or 3 times the speed, I can't imagine what I sound like sometimes because the excitement is fast. <laughs> I go to a cold place. You got to get the words out quickly. Yeah, it's true. I, I, I'm not sure why this is. I tried to drop some of our episodes into Matter and it said I can't transcribe them. So maybe that means... <laughs> Maybe that, and it can't even save the episode. So I don't know why that is. I don't know if it has something to do with the way we host our episodes, but uh, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to try to figure that out. I was going to say you could just not, you know, you could just put it in the Feedly or into Matter and then skip over affirmations and denials if you want, but for some reason it won't save our episodes. Yeah, it sounds like another classic discuss amongst yourselves situation. There's a conspiracy of some sort. Yeah, there definitely is. What are you denying, Jesse? Well, where he did that part. Did we? Oh, yeah, that's right. We started with denials. <laughs> I love it. That was an affirmation. Yes. So what are you affirming, Jesse? Okay. I'm affirming with something like uh, straightforward. It is kind of a doubling down, but sometimes you get that affirmation, which you know you've done before, and you think, I was right. This is great. And you need to say <laughs> it again. I was in this extended period of study, which prevented me from, at least by way of time available to myself, frequenting my local library. I just went back recently with my wife. And if I had joked with her, I texted her earlier in the day, said, do you want to go on a library date with me? Uh, and she had this great volitional response, I guess. So <laughs> we went to the library and I'm just reminded of uh, two things real quick. One is that I love the ambience of the library. The public library is a beautiful place. Yeah. It just has an ambience to it. And sometimes I love to go to the library where I'm not looking for anything in particular and just sit, grab some books, a stack of books and sit at a table and read or sit in like the comfy chairs. And the second thing is I was just reminded how amazing libraries are, what services they provide in our community. I live in a very diverse community. Every time I'm there, I see somebody that's like using the computers or, uh, Honestly, every time, like a refugee in particular, somebody who's not from the U.S., applying for jobs and seeking assistance with the librarian. And the librarian there is helping them, sitting with them, walking them through options, looking at various websites, helping them to translate or to guide them in the process. Your local library, wherever it is, I'm sure there's one nearby you, is doing a lot of good in your community. So the affirmation is go get a library card. And then above and beyond that, if you're able, try supporting your local library in some way. For instance, my library has, you get for like a nominal fee, it's 20 bucks a year. You can become a member of the library. And I've just done that. It's not entirely altruistic because my library has a book sale once a year. And if you remember, you get in the day before to get the primo books. Oh, so yeah. I'm also working that hard, that angle. But 
this is just a general affirmation for God's common grace in the way that there are all these like civic organizations. And the library is one of them in particular. It's connecting people with information and good books and resources that are really helping them live and manage their lives and are giving them access to different parts of the community in ways that they might not have otherwise. Yeah. So libraries are kind of the jam. Yeah. Like they're just really great. And I know like you guys are involved in your library and I love that. I think that's like a great way. And by the way, like for believers to be connected with different people, to get exposure, I actually yeah. think volunteering for your library and connected is a fantastic way to automatically insert yourself into the lifeblood of your community. Yeah. Well, and libraries are great. Local libraries are great too because uh, there's a bunch of books there and you can just take them home and read them. Like you don't have to pay for them. I mean, I, That's also I know true. it seems like strange, but like we, we as people of not just the book, but a bookish people, right? Yeah, Christians yeah. historically have been read, reader people. Like it's not just the Bible. We've been, we've been pushing for literacy. We've most, you know, major educational institutions started as Christian schools. Um, there are lots of books there and there are lots of books that are not, not just like, Oh, I'm going to get like, I'm going to pick up Lord of the Rings. Like there's lots of interesting, uh, nonfiction books. I, I do a ton of audiobooks through my local library. Like I, I don't actually ever need to step foot in the library if I don't want to, I can just check out audiobooks and eBooks and, and the way that the, the, I use Libby, but it's overdrive is like the underlying structural app that drives it. I can check out a book through the local library and it goes straight to my Kindle. It's like seamless. So there's really no reason to be involved and just getting a library card. You know, you, if you can support them financially, that's helpful, but just getting them a library, getting a library card for your local community library helps to fund them because the number of people they have on their, I mean like membership roles, I don't know that they call it right. membership roles, but the number of people they have on their membership role helps to drive funding from the state to them. So yeah, if you have a local community library and you you don't have a library card and you don't make use of it, it's a, a more or less free resource in your community that you can just make use of. You can literally just go say, I would like this book. And they'll go, here you go. Bring it back when you're done. Right. Most of them don't even have late fees anymore. You just, you take the book home, you read the book, you bring it back when you're done. That's the whole thing. There's no cost to you whatsoever. It's so amazing. I like what you said. We are people of the book and that's a best pivot we could possibly make toward let's let's look at the book then because yes. we're talking about prayer and the fact that in god's great foreordination and kindness that he would record for us for all posterity this prayer in a book that we might understand it and then you some two thousand years later have the conversation we're about to have now on this strange little medium of podcasting yeah. so as we've been doing as is our custom in the series let's go to that lord's prayer we're going to look at it from matthew chapter six and you know I'm all about switching it up on people. I like to do that. I'm going to switch up the versions again. I'm going to be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is kind of the younger hipster cousin of the NASB. And I, I encourage everybody to give it a, a firm listen because in this particular translation, you're going to hear something slightly different. And that's, of course, why I'm reading from it. So beginning in chapter, this is Matthew 6 again, verse 8. This is what Jesus says. Uh, actually, verse 9. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
Yeah. So we've just come from a whole episode, which you should definitely go back and revisit, talking about what it means that we might be spared from this temptation. I think we made this point hopefully clear enough that we're not praying for a life set apart from all suffering. What we're actually praying for is a life set apart from sinning. And that's why we should read this, lead us not into temptation in conjunction with deliver us from. And of course, deliverance is God's jam, and we could have a whole episode just in that. There is like this typical Hebrew parallelism where there's the saying of one thing and then the saying of the same thing with slightly different language. So lead us not into temptation is, of course, a poetic way of expressing the same thing as the second half of the verse in some ways, which is delivers from evil. So at its most basic level, this sixth petition is a request for spiritual protection. Let's start the conversation this way. Discuss, discuss among ourselves. Let's talk about what this evil is, because if you have a keen ear, you might, if you go out to ESV or the NIV or the NASB, what you're going to find is, but deliver us from evil. Whereas what I just read from the LSB was deliver us from the evil one. Yeah. And there are, of course, good arguments for both of these. We're talking about Greek here and about a neuter noun, which could mean evil or a masculine noun, meaning the evil one. So let's start with what are we talking about when this deliver us from evil? Yeah, if there's one thing that Reformed Brotherhood listeners love, it's when I give in-depth Greek lectures. Exactly. So uh, I'm going to make this as straightforward and simple as I can. So in Greek, there are different cases. So we have cases in English, but we don't utilize them very much. So if you think about the difference between the word who and the word whom, most of us who grew up in the who grew up in the 80s or 90s, we didn't have like formal grammar lessons during school. We just didn't, that just wasn't part of our education. So most of us probably couldn't articulate the difference between the word who and the word whom, even if we, even if we are able to use them correctly, we might not be able to articulate why. But the difference between the word who and the word whom is that the word whom is an object case. And so the subject of a sentence is the thing doing the verb, the person right. or thing doing the verb. The object of the sentence is the thing that the verb is being done to or about, right? Or, or sometimes like around, but it's, it's, it's a noun in the sentence that further explains what's going on with the verb, where the subject is the thing doing the verb. So if I say, um, I am speaking to Jesse, I and the subject or the subject of the sentence and the subject of the verb. And Jesse is the object of the verb. So whom is the object case and, and um, I or who would be the subject case in Greek. There are, are other cases and there are also genders, right? And so each case in Greek has a particular form similar right. to English, right? English has who for one form or one case and whom for another case. In Greek, there are several different forms. And on top of that, there are genders. And in most cases, both cases in the vernacular, but most grammatical cases, the nomin or the, the masculine form and the neuter form are the same. Right. And so we run into these challenges occasionally with Greek texts where we're not given enough information to know whether this is a, a, a masculine noun or whether there is a neuter noun. So all of that said, when we have a particular format of, of grammar where there is a, a particular kind of adjective, in this case, the word evil is an adjective. It's usually used to describe another noun, right? The evil person, the evil 
object, the evil thought, the evil desire, whatever it is. The evil is, an, is a descriptor that describes some other noun. When we have certain kinds of adjectives that do not have nouns that they're describing, they become they become nouns themselves. They become substantive adjectives. So they're filling the place of that. So ordinarily in Greek, if that substantive adjective is masculine, we would translate that as the evil person, right? Or right. we would like the rich. We talk about the rich, right? Rich is an adjective, but this becomes a substantive adjective. And so when it's in the plural, we talk about the rich. We're, what we're saying is the rich people right? That would be a masculine or a feminine, most often masculine because it's addressing a group of people, but that would be a plural masculine noun. If it was somehow like an object or an abstract concept, we would usually see a neuter noun. So if we were talking about the rich, somehow we were talking about the concept of rich as like a, uh, if rich was like this platonic ideal out there, there's the rich, like the richness of, of the wealth that would be described as a neuter noun. The problem is that in the case that this verb is in, the neuter and the masculine are identical forms. Right. And we don't have anything else in the sentence that helps us to understand whether we're talking about the evil person, which historically, if that's the way we understand this, we interpret that to mean the devil as a single, real, actual, personal entity, right? right. Or whether we're talking about evil in this abstract sense. Deliver us from the evil that's out there versus deliver us from the evil one that's out there. Both are talking about real things. Um, in some senses, we're not even talking about abstractions. We're talking about real, actual evil that's out there. But there's nothing grammatically that helps us to know for sure what's going on. And so while I think it's valuable for us to, to it's it's important because the, the historic tradition has interpreted, has to interpret this one way or another, right? It's not like we can choose to not interpret this. There are some nuances that arise depending on which which direction you fall, right? The LSB, which is following after the NASB, follows the tradition which understands this as a prayer to deliver us from Satan, deliver us from the evil one. Right. The ESV, um, and there are some questionable historical theological reasons why it does this. The ESV is following after the RSV. The, red, right. the Revised Standard Version, which is following after the Standard Version. that The Revised Standard Version was a relatively liberal translation. And the ESV was a self-conscious attempt to take that base text and to work out some of the liberal degradation and to, to, to bring it about as a new version that follows that historical family of translation, but it does so in a faithfully literal translation way with a conservative understanding of the scripture. So why they stuck with this abstraction of evil, the RSV went with this abstract evil concept because they deny right. that the, the translators and editors of the, the RSV deny that there is a personal entity called Satan who would be called the evil one. So they went with this abstraction of evil. But here's where I want to, this is where I'm not going to do the Doug Wilson thing. We're not just going to tell you to discuss among yourselves and then leave it at that. It honestly, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter all that much theologically, whether we're asking for deliverance from the evil one from Satan or whether we're asking from deliverance from evil itself. Um, I favor the latter, actually. I think this is not a prayer to deliver us from from specifically from Satan because Satan's not in view anywhere else in this in this like passage. It's just not it's not about spiritual oppression and spiritual oppression from specific demonic entities. That's just not really part of the text. It's about 
what we are asking God to deliver us from and the fact that we're asking to be not led into temptation and rather be, rather than being led into temptation, we're asking to be delivered from evil. To me, that leans theologically leans towards the idea that we are asking to be delivered from the evil that is within us that leads us, that, that ordinarily is what tempts us. That comes out of James, right? Um, we're tempted by the evil desires that we have. But all of that said, whether we're asking for deliverance from abstract evil or we're asking for deliverance from Satan as sort of the chief tempter or the enemy of God's people, theologically it ends in basically the same place. So we shouldn't get too it's, – it's fun to talk about and it's important and every word is inspired. So we should seek to understand what God meant by this as much as we can. But at the end of the day, theologically, it really doesn't make that much of a difference. That's totally fair. For the sake of argument, I'm just going to take the Doug Wilson discuss among yourselves other side of that, just to get people thinking and say, I would say there's a strong argument that given the connection with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, I think the noun could be really strongly interpreted as the masculine form and should be taken as a reference to the devil. We're kind of in a way saying that the prayer to God is keep me out of the path of sin and keep me safe from the devil's snares. There is something I think sometimes in which evangelicals have underemphasized that point in this prayer and to what you're saying. I think we're, we're saying the same thing, but it's helpful to see both sides of this coin that if you abstract it too much, you might pull away from the very real, real spiritual battle that's taking place before God's people. There's sometimes I think in this prayer, the temptation to think what God is saying here is, would you prevent us from committing like heinous sins and departing from God's law? But I think what this prayer is for, because it's for the Christian, is that Satan tempts Christians to doubt their salvation. And he attacks our conscience by reminding us of our great sinfulness. And so what we're being taught here is to pray that God would help us withstand the accusations and assaults of the accuser, of which, of course, you're still saying the same thing. But we are putting a name, so to speak, and a face on that. The believer is saved by faith alone. And now when we're saved into that faith, we now engage in this fight of faith. And so therefore we must call out to God for help to really hold tight to the gospel because the devil attacks faith. This is, that's what he's after here. So I, I love, I think like there's a lot of direction we could go with this and I don't want this to be a red herring. I think in particular, somebody who's really good on this is Luther's large catechism. Now Luther had a lot of particular convictions about the devil, and we can debate those all day and discuss them amongst ourselves. Have we named this episode yet? Discuss this amongst yourselves? Because <laughs> I think it seems like there. exactly what's going to be. But let me just quote briefly from what he says on the Lord's Prayer here. And you might get a flavor of both what Tony just said and what I'm saying here. This is Luther on this particular part of the Lord's Prayer. Quote, for no one can believe how the devil opposes and obstructs the petition's fulfillment. He cannot bear to have anyone teach or believe rightly. It pains him beyond measure when he lies in their abominations, uh, abominations, excuse me, are disclosed and exposed in all their shame when they're driven out of people's hearts and a breach is made in this kingdom. Therefore, like a furious foe, he raves and rages with all his power and his might end quote. So some would argue that like all the stuff we talked about so far actually gets like reinterpreted kind of when we get to these two phrases. So in other words, when we spoke about what it means to pray for our daily bread, the devil as a thief wants to come and steal that daily bread. He wants to take it away. He wants to dislocate the Christian from God. He wants to eradicate and make the Christian impotent in this world. And so when we get to these, this phraseology, there is an actual enemy potentially in mind. 
whether that's evil writ large, the evil that's within us, or the evil that is encouraged by our great foe, both are important to consider here. And what we're asking God to do is to protect us from it. Like that's a real prayer. It's not just saying like on the back end here, God, would you kind of make my path easy and, you know, just make my travels light and give me lots of energy. It's not that at all. There is a real threat against the the Christian and a kind of this kind of like Bunyanism kind of way. The journey is hard and it's asking that you'd be spared from all these toils and temptations and snares. And those snares are being volitionally created and sneakily put in your path by someone and this prayer is to thwart the enemy who is bringing to bear his cunning and his creativity in those things, which of course is to say he as a knowledgeable but not omniscient one knows something about your own nature and therefore of course is playing and leveraging upon that. But you're asking that he would be thwarted. I think this is like the right prayer that doesn't give the devil too much credit. You know, again, to quote Luther, he would say, that the devil is God's devil, meaning that the devil himself is under God's thumb, that nothing passes except through the sovereignty and permissive will of God, but that he does have volition in wanting to sift out. This is Jesus saying to Peter, like, listen, I totally, this is my weird paraphrase, totally appreciate where you come from, Peter, but <laughs> the devil desired to sift you like wheat. Yeah. And I prayed that that would not occur. And to some degree, I think what Jesus is saying here is, this is my prayer for you and the prayer that you ought to bring before the Father. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that I think is is a challenge for all Christians um, is this idea of sort of like shifting the blame for our sins. Yeah. And so that's sure. part, of, part of why I push against and I'm not saying you're doing this or even that Luther is doing this, but part of why I push against this understanding of the, the deliverance from evil clause here being the evil one is that there is, uh, and maybe this is because I, I came to faith in circles that were deeply influenced by dispensationalism, but also sort of like charismatic, almost like an over-interest in demon oppression. And so like I can remember distinctly uh, on a regular basis people in my youth group would be saying that they they were driven to sin by some sort of demonic influence and they were praying for deliverance from that. And they would they would oftentimes they would bring this prayer to bear in that, right? They would right. maybe not explicitly, but they would use this language of deliverance from the evil one. So there there's a his, there's a personal history for me that that pushes me against this. There are some grammatical reasons why I, I lean away from this interpretation. Also, I want to read real quick what Calvin says here. If you if you're going to read Luther, then I'm going to read Calvin. <laughs> he says here, the word evil may be taken in the neuter gender as signifying the evil thing, or the masculine gender as signifying the evil one. Um, and then he goes down to say, um, it may with equal propriety be explained as referring to sin. There's no necessity for raising a debate on this point for the meaning remains nearly the same that we are in danger from the devil and from sin. If the Lord does not protect and deliver us. And so whether Jesse's position is the right position or whether my position is the right position is almost irrelevant because whether this, this, we see this a lot in scripture. Actually, I see this happen where people will, they'll insist that a particular passage means something because they are convinced that the Bible teaches that thing. So like the common example that I see is where um, Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did unto me. 
And they, the people understand the least of these to mean like the poor and downtrodden in the world. That's not, that's not grammatically or linguistically or theologically what that text is saying, right? That text is talking about the least of these, these little children are referring to Christians, particularly the disciples, right? And there's other places where he says the least of these, my brothers, he's specifically saying, whatever you do to my appointed designated emissaries, it's like you did that to me. But because people are convinced that God cares for the poor, that what we, how we treat the poor, how we think of the poor, how we respond to the poor, how we care for the poor, that, that, that somehow has a bearing on what we think and do and relate how we relate to Jesus, that that must be what this text means. It's true that what we think of the poor, how we relate to the poor, like that has something to do with what we think of, of Jesus and how we relate to Jesus. But that text doesn't teach that. Just because the Bible teaches it doesn't mean each individual text teaches that. And I think this is a passage that sometimes people land so firmly on one side or the other. And where I think Calvin's quote is so helpful, it doesn't, it doesn't particularly matter in this text whether it means the devil as an as a concrete individual distinct entity who leads us astray and tempts us with evil, or whether it's temptation and evil and sin abstractly, even though that abstraction is a real thing in our life, it doesn't matter because we are in danger from the devil and we're in danger from our own sin. Exactly. So we have when we pray for deliverance from evil, whether this text, whether Jesus has Satan in mind as the one he's he's commanding us to deliver, be delivered from, or to pray for deliverance from or not. We still should pray that God would deliver us from the devices of Satan, right? So exactly. this this petition or this second half of this petition, the whole petition is really about us going to God, recognizing that we are evil and that there are evil forces in the world that want to reinforce that evil and rob us of exactly. our joy. And asking God to deliver us from that, asking right. God to not lead, not to lead us into temptation, but to deliver us from evil. The biggest strength that I have, I think your, your side of the debate of this discuss among yourselves situation here is that God doesn't tempt anyone. And so if we understand this second clause as explanatory of the first, it does have more explanatory power. If this is Satan, that's t that is we're being delivered from, because right. then it's no longer God. It's no longer us saying to God, don't, don't lead us into temptation because that's the kind of thing you do. It's saying, Lead, don't, do not lead us in temptation, which is to say, deliver us from Satan, because Satan is the one who leads us into temptation. Um, right. But again, either way, either way, we slice this. And this is where I think um, we were having a conversation in the Telegram chat the other day. Um, I think it was Daniel Sturgeon um, who was saying it's a little bit strange reading some of these like really intense, in-depth arguments about like linguistic metastructures of texts. Like double chiasms in the epistle of of uh, the Ephesians, and where I want to connect that is, I think sometimes we overcomplicate the Bible, and we we don't think necessarily about the fact that the first century reader that this would just not have been an issue, right? right? Even though there is a grammatic ambiguity here. It's not something probably that a native Greek speaker who's familiar with all the idioms of the day and all of the background of the day, it's probably not something that they would be tripped up on. Right. Um, and I suppose what makes matters either more, probably more clear to the original hearers of Jesus's teaching uh, and less, less clear potentially to us is that Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. 
So in, in Jesus's original deliverance of this on the Sermon on the Mount or whichever, you know, whenever this was originally delivered, it probably was not ambiguous to the original audience. Um, it's ambiguous to us because we're removed from the context a little bit. But that's the beauty of this is it, it honestly, it doesn't really matter all that much. And so we shouldn't get too bogged down in trying to parse out the nitty gritty details of this and getting lining up our resources on this side and that side and, and spending all of our time on this, we should instead focus on the fact that what we have to ask God for is that he would protect us. He would protect us and deliver us from everything out there that is opposed to him, whether that's an internal thing right. within us that's opposed to him or an external entity that's opposed to him or a world structure that's opposed to him, whatever it is that is opposed to him and therefore opposed to God's people and opposed to us. We're asking God to deliver us from that, save us from that, rescue us from that. And there's an implied statement here because we cannot rescue ourselves from that. Exactly. We can't pull ourselves out of that, whether that's pulling ourselves out of our own just filthy sinfulness or whether it's delivering us from Satan himself, who we can't defeat by our own power. We have to ask God and we have to petition God to deliver us from that. There's no doubt that you're exactly right. Like the center of this is that we require and need deliverance. It's the kind of deliverance that we're not aware of, which is why Jesus says, pray in this way, ask that you would be delivered, implies that not only is great deliverance necessary, but you are so blind that you don't even see that you are in need of that great deliverance. Yeah. So I would actually propose a third way on this, that my official stance, because I was just trying to bait some more conversation, my official stance is it's both. Yeah. I think what God is asking us to consider here is both what Jonathan Edwards would say in his his you know very famous sermon sinners in the hands of the angry God that you are traversing like this log and you will slip on it underneath your own weight that is you don't need any outside influence to sin and how dare you try to blame the devil for the own depravity that exists within you by your own fallen nature I totally agree with that on one hand. On the other hand, I think we also find, you've heard me push against this before in our conversations, this idea that like somehow the devil is always to blame. And I've heard people pray things like, this This happens all over the world, I think, especially in well-meaning churches, is you know, there's lots of details on a Lord's Day, and you might ask that the you would be spared from Satan interfering with those things, sometimes in like practical things like the sound system. And I often think, <laughs> well, again, because we know that he is not omnipresent, if you can get the devil in your sound system, the better prayer is, God, would you hold him there so that throughout the course of your own service, he would not be able to influence anybody else, at least by his direct presence and influence, if he is tied up in your own wires. So like there is balance here. And I think the ambiguity is a beautiful tension I'm not trying to be Lutheran about this, but a beautiful tension in which we find that God is calling us to consider both those things. That is that left to your own devices, you will surely fall into evil and you must be delivered. And that in addition to that, the devil is real. Yeah. And so he is going to come at God's people with great energy and with great volition. He's going to say things like, listen, you're not ready to pray. Just wait a half an hour, wait a yeah. day, or wait until you're better in a better condition or you've accomplished this thing or that thing. And so meanwhile, the devil is there to distract us from doing the very thing that God is commanding us to do, which is to pray, because there is legitimate power in prayer. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Yeah. So because of this, I think it's both. I don't think we need to parse it. It's a, like you said, it's an interesting discussion. But what we're definitely saying is that we are people 
that no matter where you are in the classroom of the gospel, whether you're like your front row, back row, somewhere in the middle, or you've been sitting there a long time, or you've just walked in, the bottom line is we all need on a daily basis deliverance. And so that that contingency that we are in fact still contingent beings means that we need rescue all the time. Even if what you're thinking is like, well, I've already been rescued. Like I've been justified. And now I'm working in the sanctification. It's God who wills and works in me, do his own goodwill. That is all true. And yet even that requires that we ought to pray, God, deliver us from evil and deliver us from the evil one. Yeah, They're both present in our lives. And we need this good and gracious God who says, I will fulfill the promise that is to not deliver up the baby to be left on the doorstep, that I will complete the good work that I, in fact, have begun in you. And part of that is a deliverance on a daily basis from evil, both writ large and specifically and purposefully represented and manifest in the enemy of your faith. God does deliverance on both of those fronts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think, um, this will probably wrap it up. I mean, this is one of those topics that we could we could riff on for a long time, and for sure, and we probably will come back to this. I mean, this is a this is one of those like perennial. It's funny. I was when I was trying to send an episode of the Reformed Brotherhood to uh, to matter to get them to transcribe it. The episode, the first episode I tried to send was actually episode three of our podcast, which is the episode we did on Satan and demons, which was like one of the first few episodes we did. And even back then we were talking about how it's kind of crazy that people like pray Satan out of the sound system. Right. Right. So it's, these are perennial issues that Christians need to wrestle with and they, they don't stop wrestling with like we don't. And this is sometimes a little bit like contrite, uh, not contrite, trite, a little bit overplayed, but there's a reality to it. We don't graduate from the gospel. We don't graduate from the reality that like we're fallen creatures that need a savior. And sometimes I think uh, we are in a position where we sort of feel like we do. Like we, we, we lose sight of the fact that we need to co- come back to the basics of the gospel again right. and again and again. And this is something that I think that early church really did strong, was really strong in that the, the more modern church is not. Part of the baptismal vows of the early church included, um, and all of the Baptists are like, yeah, baptismal vows, baby, don't take vows. That's a different conversation. I, I acknowledge that. Get your memes ready. I don't care. But part of the baptismal vows that the early church, adult converts in the early church took was that they renounced Satan and his works. And yeah. there was a real sense in the early church that it was a fundamental part of your conversion that you now had this special protection against Satan, that God had delivered you not just from your sin in the abstract. He had not just redeemed you from sin. You can go back to our atonement series. We talked about like the fish hook theory or the the Christus Victor theory. Um, But the early church really had this strong perspective that the salvation that God brings about in the lives of his chosen people is not just a salvation from like this abstract moral evil that's out there, but it was a concrete victory and redemption and rescue from the oppression of the devil. Amen. And so whether, whether we're talking, whether Jesus is talking about deliver us from evil in this abstract sense or deliver us from the evil one. It's not relevant, but 
we don't ever graduate from the reality that God has delivered us from both of those things. Exactly. And so I think the strength of what I've been learning as we study through the the Lord's Prayer and as I've been thinking about it in my own like devotion life and meditating on it and writing about it in my journal, what I think is really, really valuable about the Lord's Prayer is how foundational and basic each of these petitions is, right? We We praise God for who he is. We ask him to bring about his will by saving all of his chosen people. We ask him to bring about his will by, by eliminating all rebellion against him in the earth. Right. We, we essentially say like, come Lord Jesus, come in, in one of those petitions. We, we thank him and we praise him and we petition him to continue to meet our needs. We thank him and we petition him for continuing to help us to relate to our brothers and sisters in the right way and to, for forgiving us from our sins. And those are all basic elements of the Christian gospel, right? The Christian gospel isn't just a get out of hell free card. It's a comprehensive understanding that God is going to set all things to right. And that that the individual believer whom God has elected from eternity past is part of that setting all things to right. It's part of the, the rebuilding of God's chosen people and establishing of the fulfillment of his covenant in the end times. That's all part of the gospel. And the right. deliverance from God's ultimate enemy who has oppressed God's people since the very beginning that's part of the gospel too. We don't often think about that, but like Paul says, like the, the God of, you know, I don't remember all the exact phrasing, but he says like, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes. Like that's part of the gospel. So yes, it is. at the end of the day, the benefit and the beauty of praying the Lord's prayer and reflecting on the Lord's prayer on a regular basis, isn't that it's some super advanced Christian practice, which I think sometimes we think it might be like the people who memorize this and pray daily. Like those are really the advanced Christians. It's actually like the basic first level Christian practice would be to memorize the way that God has taught us to communicate with him. So that's my encouragement for people this week is to, to think through, and I suppose it's been my encouragement for people through this whole, this whole middle mini series here, pick a petition, pick a, pick a clause in the Lord's prayer and just let that be the center of your prayer each day. Right. Yes. Lord, on my way to work today, I'm going to be tempted in at work in all sorts of ways to be deceptive and to be dishonorable and to be disrespectful to my boss and to try to cut corners and all these things that we're tempted to do in our daily life. I'm going to be tempted to punch out for lunch a little bit late so I can have a little bit more time. Well, that's theft, right? All of these ways deliver me from that, Lord. Right. We can do that every day. The Lord has given us this prayer to help us orient ourselves and ground ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the deliverance from all of these things that the Lord has promised us and has granted us, not just that he's promised us, he's actually given them to us already. It's already reality that we've been delivered from evil. So now all we have to do is thank God and ask him to continue to do what he's already doing. Yeah, that's a lovely piece of encouragement there. By the way, like, and now we, I mean, we, we produce the podcast by Fiat so we can make our own rules. I'm going to extend it for just a second longer and you can shut off at this point if you want to, but <laughs> I, I want to just really come alongside what you said and make this strange case that I think one of the most underutilized titles for Jesus is head crusher. Just yeah. go to first Samuel 17. If you haven't prayed to Jesus as the head crusher, then you're missing out on this great victory, this lovely title of the one who comes and brings victory. And again, just go to first Samuel 17, take a look at that in action. 
I want to close or at least end my part of what we're talking about with quoting Luther again, because he, it turns out, you know, we've been talking about this idea throughout this series of doing the two minute challenge, set a timer. If you feel like praying is just really difficult and who doesn't feel that way, welcome to everybody. And we have a club, we meet in the Lord's day and <laughs> it's just difficult to pray. It's the, it's pray. It's the easiest work is the hardest work. Set a timer and just get into it. Just try, work through it, and maybe even start, like you've said, with the Lord's Prayer and emphasize one particular clause, one particular petition each day. That That's all I think that really could be the fuse that lights a prayer life that is aflame. So let me quote Luther because it turns out that I guess he gave an original challenge. It wasn't quite the two-minute challenge, but here's what he says about the Lord's Prayer that I think is the best way for us to launch into this week. He says this, Cultivate the habit of falling asleep with the Lord's Prayer on your lips every evening when you go to bed and again every morning when you get up. And if occasion, place, and time permit, pray before you do anything else. In this way, you get ahead of the devil by surprise and without warning whether you are ready or not before he catches up with you and makes you wait. For it is better to pray now when you are half ready than later when you're not ready at all. Well, Jesse, and I want to add to that because that's beautiful. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.